Greetings and welcome to Stars and Stuff, the astronomy podcast brought to you by me, Richard J. Bartlett. In this episode, we'll cover the news and planets, take a look at the Keystone Cluster, and then revisit some of the constellations that have come and gone over the past 400 years. It's now officially summer for Northern Hemisphere observers, and traditionally, astronomers see this as a time when the nights are at their shortest. The truth is slightly more complicated. The shortest night of the year was on June 20th, so in fact the nights are now getting longer. Poor summer is a little maligned in this respect, and even though the nights are still short, there's still plenty to see in the skies overhead. One of my personal favourites is Messier 13, the Keystone Cluster, in the constellation of Hercules. This bright, globular cluster is one of the biggest and brightest you can see and has the added bonus of being pretty easy to locate. At magnitude 5, it might barely be visible to the naked eye under dark skies, but I can't say for sure I've ever seen it. Many moons ago, I was convinced I could see it with just my eyes, but on that particular night, I was at a party at a friend's house and I'd had a pint or two. Realistically, I highly doubt I saw anything. That being said, you should be able to detect it with binoculars, even under suburban skies. I've seen it with 10x50s from my home somewhere in the sprawl of Los Angeles. It wasn't very impressive, it could barely be seen, and my notes describe it as an extremely faint glimmer of dark, misty light, small, hazy, and barely discernible as circular. Compare that to when I lived in Oklahoma, where I could spot it with just 8x32 binoculars. Telescopically, it fares a lot better and my 4.5 inch Orion Dobsonian gave some very nice views from my home in Oklahoma. A magnification of about 90 times allowed me to resolve some of the cluster's individual stars, but that wasn't what really stood out to me. Once you get to about 100 times, you start to notice patterns in the cluster, with chains of stars curving away from the centre. In my notes, I subconsciously used the word tendrils to describe them, but it wasn't until much later that I realised why. These chains reminded me of the tentacles of some bizarre sea creature at the bottom of the ocean. Increase the magnification to about 150 times and the view can be literally dazzling. As you stare, you notice more and more stars and the chains become more apparent. It's exactly the kind of deep sky object that will make you order the largest scope your credit card can afford. I wish the view from light polluted skies was just as spectacular. My 5-inch Celestron reflector makes a valiant effort to prize as many stars out of the cluster as it can, but unfortunately it can't compete against the darker skies of Oklahoma. At a magnification of 81 times, I noted that the core appeared large and bright, with a fainter halo that doubled the size of the cluster. There was some resolution of the individual stars at 162 times, but the chains of stars were nowhere to be seen and, overall, the cluster appeared a shadow of its former self. Frankly, it made me a little sad as I remembered how it used to be. It serves as a reminder of how I need to get back under those clear dark skies I first encountered when I emigrated from the UK. It seems that, no matter where I am, the stars will always be my first home. An international team of astronomers has created the most detailed map yet of the atmosphere of the red supergiant star Antares. The map has revealed the size and temperature of Antares' atmosphere from just above the star's surface, throughout its chromosphere, and all the way out to the wind region. As seen in visible light, Antares' diameter is approximately 700 times larger than the Sun, but when observed in radio light, the supergiant turned out to be even more gigantic. 
the star's chromosphere extends out to two and a half times the star's radius. In comparison, our sun's chromosphere is only one two hundredth of its radius. The temperature of the chromosphere is also lower than previous optical and ultraviolet observations have suggested. The temperature peaks at 3,500 degrees Celsius, 6,400 degrees Fahrenheit, after which it gradually decreases. As a comparison, the sun's chromosphere reaches temperatures of almost 20,000 degrees Celsius. A team of astronomers has picked up on a curious, repeating rhythm of fast radio bursts emanating from an unknown source outside our galaxy. 500 million light-years away. Fast radio bursts, or FRBs, are short, intense flashes of radio waves that are thought to be the product of small, distant, extremely dense objects, though exactly what those objects might be is a long-standing mystery in astrophysics. FRBs typically last a few milliseconds, during which time they can outshine entire galaxies. This new source is the first to produce a periodic or cyclical pattern of fast radio bursts. The pattern begins with a noisy, four-day window during which the source emits random bursts of radio waves, followed by a 12-day period of radio silence. The accretion of new material during Pluto's formation may have generated enough heat to create a liquid ocean that has persisted beneath an icy crust to the present day, despite the dwarf planet's orbit far from the Sun in the cold, outer reaches of the solar system. This hot start scenario contrasts with the traditional view of Pluto's origins as a ball of frozen ice and rock in which radioactive decay could have eventually generated enough heat to melt the ice and form a subsurface ocean. Researchers have found that rocky exoplanets, which formed early in the life of the galaxy, seem to have had a greater chance of developing a magnetic field and plate tectonics than planets which formed later. As both these conditions are considered favourable to the development of life, this means that if life exists in the galaxy, it may have developed earlier than later, and that planets formed more recently may have less chance of developing life. Astronomers have discovered the most massive quasar known in the early universe, containing a monster black hole with a mass equivalent to 1.5 billion suns. The newly discovered quasar is one of only two known from the same cosmological period. Quasars are the most energetic objects in the universe, and since their discovery, astronomers have been keen to determine when they first appeared in our cosmic hist history. Betelgeuse, the bright star in the constellation of Orion, has been fascinating astronomers in recent months because of its unusually strong decline in brightness. Scientists have been discussing a number of scenarios trying to explain its behaviour. Now a team has shown that most likely, unusually large star spots on the surface of Betelgeuse has caused the dimming. Their results rule out the previous conjecture that it was dust recently ejected by Betelgeuse which obscured the star. Astronomers have discovered the absence of an unstable massive star in a dwarf galaxy. Scientists think this could indicate that the star became less bright and partially obscured by dust. An alternative explanation is that the star collapsed into a black hole without producing a supernova. If true, this would be the first direct detection of such a monster star ending its life in this manner. Lastly, researchers have discovered the first exposed core of an exoplanet, which provides an unprecedented glimpse inside the interior of a planet. The newly discovered exoplanet offers the unique opportunity to peer inside the interior of a planet and learn about its composition. It orbits around a star about 730 light-years away, which is very similar to our Sun. 
the exposed core, is the same size as Neptune in our solar system. The researchers assume that it is a gas giant that was either stripped of its gaseous atmosphere or that failed to fully form one in its early life due to special circumstances. Jupiter and Saturn are now edging into the evening sky and both should be visible over the southeastern horizon by about 11pm. Both planets can be seen toward the south between 1 and 2 a.m., but unfortunately they are both still skirting through the eastern half of Sagittarius and won't appear very high above the horizon. Jupiter reaches opposition on the 14th and will therefore rise at sunset and then set at sunrise. This gives you the whole night to observe the planet. Since it's at its best, it now appears a very respectable 48 arc seconds in diameter through the telescope and shines at a brilliant magnitude negative 2.8 in the night sky. Saturn reaches opposition just six days later, on the 20th, but it won't get any larger or brighter than it already is. It's currently 18 arc seconds in diameter and magnitude 0.1. Look out for the full moon close to Jupiter and Saturn on the evening of the 5th. Next over the horizon is Neptune. It will surface at around midnight and can be seen as a dim magnitude 8 blue star in Aquarius. Mars rises a little after midnight and is also improving in visibility. It's now magnitude minus 0.7 and is 12 arc seconds in diameter. So while it appears smaller than Saturn, it's actually brighter than its more distant sibling. Mars is among the faint stars of Pisces and Cetus and is joined by the last quarter moon on the morning of the 11th and 12th. Uranus is up at around 2am, but you won't have a lot of time to observe it before the sky starts to brighten before the dawn. If you're up early on the 14th, Go outside at about 4am and try your hand at spotting a planet close to the moon. Both should appear within the same binocular field of view, but while the waning crescent moon will obviously be seen, you'll probably need a star chart or software to identify Uranus. Venus is an easy target for anyone up before the dawn. It rises more than two hours before the sun and is now moving through the constellation of Taurus the Bull. It will appear among the stars of the Hyades from the 4th to the 11th and will make a close pass by Aldebaran on the 11th and the following morning. Get up about an hour before sunrise and grab your binoculars as both the planet and the stars can be easily seen together within the same field of view. Mercury begins to creep into the pre-dawn twilight but it will be tricky to spot until the second half of the month. Even then, this won't be its best morning appearance of the year. The moon turns full in the early hours of the 5th if you live in the Americas, you may be interested to know that a penumbral lunar eclipse occurs on the same date. Mid-eclipse occurs at around 2.29am Eastern Time, with about 35% of the moon's surface in the lighter portion of the Earth's shadow. Realistically, you're not likely to notice a difference, but take a look if you get the chance. When I was a kid learning about astronomy, I used to love reading about the stars and constellations. Many of them were known to the ancient Greeks and had some pretty cool legends associated with them. For example, there was Orion the Hunter, and Scorpius the Scorpion, and Draco the Dragon, and then there was Antlia the Air Pump. What? The Greeks didn't have air pumps, or at least not to my knowledge. Of the 88 officially recognized constellations, 48 were known to the Greeks. So where did the other 40 come from? The short answer is that astronomers invented them over the past 400 years or so, but the official list of 88 constellations wasn't determined until 1928, 
and there were a lot of constellations that simply fell out, fell out of disuse in the intervening centuries, but we'll come back to those in a moment. So why did this happen? Well, the Greeks weren't familiar with the entire night sky. They couldn't, for example, see many of the stars of the southern hemisphere. So when explorers like Ferdinand Magellan started to sail south of the equator, they encountered a sky full of stars they'd never seen before. It wasn't long before astronomers started to join the dots and create a few constellations to fill in the gaps. The oldest of the modern constellations is Columba the Dove. This was invented by the Dutch-Flemish astronomer Petrus Plantius in 1592 and appears south of Orion and Lepus in the sky. Okay, nothing really weird about a dove, but the others that follow are a bit of a mixed bag. You have a bird of paradise, a crane, a peacock, even a phoenix. But then you've got some oddballs, like constellations to represent a chameleon, a fly, an Indian, and a lesser water snake. No one seems to know if Indus, the Indian, actually represents someone from India. Meanwhile, Muska, the fly, was depicted as being lassoed by the tongue of the nearby chameleon, and Hydrus, the lesser water snake, seems to be a poor relation of mighty Hydra, the largest constellation in the entire night sky. While we're on the subject of slightly strange animals in the sky, there's also the constellation Camelopardalus. Take a wild guess what this constellation represents. That's right, a giraffe. Now, whether you knew it was a giraffe because you're into astronomy, or whether you thought it was a camel because, well, it sounds like one, is a little irrelevant. The question here is a simple one. Why? The stars of the constellation are very faint. It's not as though you'd look up at the sky and immediately notice what looks like a giraffe standing there. In all my years of staring at the stars, I've not once seen patterns in the sky like those astronomers did. It's not like seeing shapes in the clouds, and trust me, I've done my share of that too. Maybe I'm just lacking imagination, although I don't seem to have any problems with the aforementioned clouds. The ancient Greeks based their constellations on their gods and legends, and the things they were familiar with. Similarly. Modern astronomers also base some constellations on the things they were familiar with. So you've also got constellations representing a compass, a telescope, an easel, and even a microscope. Understandable, perhaps, but I think the modern astronomers could have tried a little harder. After all, this is the same group that wanted to name the planet Uranus, George's star, after the King of England. That's pandering at its finest. Incidentally, this is the same mad King George who was on the throne during the American Revolution. Remember that this July 4th. Since those times, many of the names we've given to celestial objects have had their roots firmly planted in legend. For example, many of the moons of the planets are named after mythological figures. The exception is Uranus, which apparently is determined to be special and unique in whatever way it can. Uranus's moons are named after characters from Shakespearean plays. Imagine if the planet had been named George's star after all. Would its moons then be named after other members of the royal family? I hope not. Anyway, I digress. Not every constellation from ancient times made the final cut either. For example, as many astronomers know, the constellations Carina, Puppis and Vela were all once part of the much larger constellation Argo Navis. This was the vessel Jason and his Argonauts sailed in, but it was broken up into three parts. Carina represents the keel, Puppis is the poop deck, and Vela represents the sails. Another constellation was originally created in the 2nd century and appears to have survived until the early 20th. It was named Antinous after the beloved companion of the Emperor Hadrian, who formed the constellation to immortalize the man after his death. 
It was depicted in star charts with Aquila the Eagle, but nowadays it's been largely forgotten and is almost never mentioned. The modern day constellation Volpecula rep represents a fox, but there was also a goose here too. Collectively known as Volpecula and Ansa, the goose was depicted as being carried in the mouth of the fox, but it always seemed to be a very small goose. Either that or it, or it was a very large fox. Unlike Antinous, a remnant of the goose is still in, there in the sky today. Volpecula's brightest star has kept the name Ansa and can be found close to Alberio in nearby Zygnus the Swan. Like Alberio, Ansa is an easy double star, but unfortunately it's nowhere near as spectacular as its more famous neighbour. No one seems to know why some constellations have survived while others didn't. Were they more popular? Were they simply better known because they appeared in more star charts? Did someone bribe the International Astronomical Union or somehow interfere with the vote? We may never know. Here's this episode's trivia question. You can get over 700 like it from my book, The Daily Astronomical and Space Quiz Book, which is available on Amazon in both paperback and Kindle format. So here it is. The Keystone Cluster is included in Messier's famous catalogue of deep sky objects. Which number is it? Is it A, 13, B, 23, C, 31, or D, 63? As always, I'll give you the answer in just a few moments. The answer to the trivia question is A, number 13. The cluster was actually discovered by Edmund Halley in 1714. Messier added it to his catalogue 50 years later. For the record, it lies about 22,000 light years away, is roughly 145 light years in diameter, and contains several hundred thousand stars. That's it for another episode. As always, if you liked it, please subscribe and tell your friends. You can find stars and stuff on the iHeartRadio app, Spotify, Apple and Google, among others, or by going to tinyurl.com forward slash snspod. If you're interested in my books, you can find them at tinyurl.com forward slash rjbamazon-us in the United States and tinyurl.com forward slash rjbamazon Dash UK in the United Kingdom. You're also welcome to email me at astronomywriter at gmail.com with any comments or questions you might have. And don't forget to come join the Stars and Stuff Facebook group at tinyurl.com forward slash SNS Facebook group. Thanks for listening, and until we talk again, clear skies to you. <laughs>